Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Zephaniah chapter 3, we're picking up at verse 14. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we come this morning to the last words that are spoken by the prophet Zephaniah to the soon-to-be-exiled kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is long gone, and the southern kingdom, Judah, is about to have the first part of Zephaniah's prophecy fulfilled. You remember the first two chapters, the first two and a half chapters, that it is filled with judgments, judgments against Israel and the nations. Babylon would come into Judah and Jerusalem and be used as a tool to punish Israel for their sins, and particularly for the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh, the the evil king, who filled Jerusalem with blood, and he also filled the temple with idols. And we found last time we came to Zephaniah, though, the... the, (laughs) The message of the prophet is not all judgment and destruction, right? We found that it's not all judgment and destruction. The sun broke through the clouds in verse 9 of chapter 3. And we learn that God will always be faithful to his covenant, right? His promise to never fail or forsake his people. But we remember, we must remember that his people have always been those who are circumcised in heart. And not merely those circumcised in the flesh. Right? His people have been those who have been justified by faith, as was Abraham, and not justified by works. So we notice in our text this morning that the prophet is calling for the people to shout for joy. To shout for joy and to rejoice and to exult with the whole heart. Right? It's quite a shift from repent to Shout for joy, rejoice, right? It is only with the eyes of faith that one can rejoice in the midst of judgment, right? When this is being delivered, oh, 
you know, the judgment hasn't come, but they're still grieving about the Zephaniah having told them what's coming. And, and you can imagine that this, this uh, exhortation now to shout and rejoice and triumph is, is going to be hard to swallow. But it's only through the eyes of faith that one can rejoice in the midst of, of judgment, to exalt in God in the midst of widespread discipline. Right? Um, but this is what the prophet is calling the faithful, the remnant to do. In the midst of the earth, and in this case, their very houses and neighborhoods being devoured in the fire of God's zeal. The faithful are called to then rejoice. Right? But they rejoice with minds, and the only way the faithful will rejoice is they rejoice with minds set on things above, removing their minds from dwelling merely on the things of the earth. The trial may be confusing, right? The fire of God's judgment. The trial may be very confusing, very painful, be filled with loss, but as one who acknowledges God's sovereignty in everything that comes to pass, that trial isn't without purpose, right? It's not without a meaning. And in that, in that meaning, in that purpose, we may rejoice, Right? And ultimately, the will of God is always toward that which is good. That which is good and that which brings glory ultimately to his name. So it takes knowing God. It takes knowing God and it takes knowing that he, he in a jealous way, guards his name to make sense of our trials. Right? To make sense of our trials, we have to know that God is for himself first. And his will is entirely good as he sets about glorifying himself. But how hard it is to exalt in God when the trial is upon us, right? When some weighty trial is upon us, it's very difficult for us to, to shout with joy. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us to do the same thing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the Apostle Paul belittles the significance of our suffering by referring to them as momentary light affliction. He writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And if any of us lived through one-third of what the, what the apostle lived through, we would not ever refer to it as momentary light affliction. That's not how we would update our Facebook feed about the sufferings we had gone through. Right? Momentary light affliction. He, he belittles the affliction of his body, but exalts in the good that it is for his soul. And then he goes on um, to say... Uh, what I just said about looking beyond the now and the eternal, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so here in Zephaniah, the prophet has announced judgment and then prophesied of things yet to come in which the people were then at that moment to rejoice. Zephaniah says, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. This clearly clearly has reference to a future time because the prophesied destruction, which Zephaniah spends the three-fourths of his book detailing, would come about shortly in the future, as we know from history, as we know from Scripture. The faithful remnant then, like you and I now, was to put their minds on the things to come. In this case, they were to put their minds on the one hope that every faithful Israelite delighted in. What did every faithful Israelite delight in and look for? Look for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. The, the fulfillment of these verses comes in the very incarnation of the Son of God. Right? Nothing less than God in the flesh is able to explain the joy of these verses and the, and the full intent of the meaning of these verses. In my mind, you know, you read prophecies like this, and my mind immediately jumps to the prophet Isaiah's words, which are much like Zephaniah's, that undoubtedly speak about the coming of the Lord and the Lord's predecessor, John the Baptist. In Isaiah 40, we read, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice that both in in our passage in Zephaniah and this one in Isaiah, that the forgiveness of the sins of the people is announced. The forgiveness of the sins of the people. After all the judgments that God has rained down on the people through the prophet, we read this. In verse 15, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. I mean, Babylon's coming. But there's a worse enemy than Babylon, right? It's their, it's their, God hates their sin. God hates sinners, right? And so in Isaiah, it says, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. Sins removed. Now, you may be incorrectly and pathetically thinking at this point, particularly if you're inclined toward harsh judgments, that God's grace to Jerusalem seems unfair. It seems unfair. Didn't those wicked idolaters have what was coming to them? You know, didn't, didn't, uh, isn't it, doesn't it feel just to you that, that Babylon would come along and annihilate this people who had, who had filled the streets of Israel with blood and who had put idols in the temples and who had worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars? Right? Yes, yes, they did all that and God would punish them for their idolatry. But to the rejoicing of all sinners, right, since Adam... And all sinners in the future, he also sent his son that the ultimate judgment might fall upon his shoulders. Right? Man of sorrows. What a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Right? Hallelujah, what a savior. 
Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. So we add our voices to the Apostle Paul's exclamation, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? The, the grace of, I mean, if, if you're prone to harsh judgments and you're like stupid Israelites, you don't understand yourself. Stupid human, right? Stupid humans. Stupid, sinful humans. Let's, let's just stop and catalog one day of your life. And see how many sins stack up. Right? Just let's find out how much grace we need from God. We need an infinite amount of grace. Right? From the very Son of God Himself. And and here is Zephaniah in the midst of having said, You're wicked sinners. He's rubbed their noses in their foul sins. And yet at the end, shout joyfully, God has taken away your sins. Brothers and sisters, the whole backdrop of this glorious message that, that God has taken away our sins is the putrid mess of our sins. The putrid, putrid, gigantic ocean of each of our sins. Each one of us should be able to identify with the sinful nation of Israel. How many idols have we set up in the temple of our hearts? In fact, we are commanded to do so in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, um, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples to us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Right? Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so in Zephaniah, which starts out with the message of judgment, we have our sins represented, right? And then in the end, with God's unfathomable grace, right? All of which makes no sense unless the Son of God is punished for those sins, rises from the dead, and triumphs over all of the first Adam's mess, right? Zephaniah saw this before it happened, right? Zephaniah saw this before it happened. He saw that the king of Israel would be in the midst of the people and that that appearing would cause 
the fear of disaster to dissipate, verse 15. That reminds me of the message to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. Peace and goodwill toward men with whom he is well pleased. Peace now. Peace. Jesus has come in the flesh. Peace. Verse 16, And that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Now think of that image. The faithful people of God, those sinners themselves, are being told to rejoice in God because the Son of God, a warrior, but not just any warrior, a victorious warrior, is going to be with them. Right? Jesus, the victorious warrior, is going to be with them. With his people for whom he would fight bloody battle against the word, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And for his people who would know his love. The second half of verse 17 outlines the tenderness of the Son of God's concern and deep love for his people. Listen to this. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will be quiet in his love. When are we quiet in somebody's love? We're quiet in somebody's love when it's just a satisfying love, right? You're just satisfied. You're quiet in it. And Jesus is that toward his people. You may be filled with some sense of shame over your sins. You may, be, you may have lived, you know, you may look back over your life and have regrets. You may look back over your life and your sinful choices and wonder how God could love you, right? You have a deep awareness of your ugliness before God, but in union with Jesus Christ, each of you individually is precious to God And collectively, we are together the bride of Jesus Christ. And Jesus looks on that bride, that bride we read about last time in Ezekiel 18, that sinful, rebellious bride. And he says, for her, I will humble myself. For her, I will submit to my own laws as a man. For her, I will suffer. For her, I will die. I will exult over that bride with joy. I will be quiet in my love. I will be satisfied with her. I will rejoice over her with shouts of joy. Do you wonder at that? Does that boggle your mind? Do you wonder at the fact that the holy God has made you lovely by his mere choice of you? Right? Do you wonder at the quiet love of God for your wicked self? Do you rejoice in it? Brothers and sisters, stop. I mean, stop being so stifled in your exaltation of a redeeming God. Stop being so so limited in your 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 rejoicing before him. Stop being so self-righteous and admit and admit you earned his judgment. You've earned it every day. You've earned it over and over and over and over and over again. And astonishingly, God has taken away his judgments against you. He's quiet. He is satisfied in his love for you. Jesus has taken away your reproach. 
The faithful remnant looks around at the state of Judah, verse 18, and they are grieved by a few things. They're grieved by the fact that the appointed feasts are not happening. And they, they grieve that the reproach they bear from their enemies is, is it's a burden on them, right? It's a burden on them. And we might feel the same way today, don't we? The church is rent by schisms and heresies asunder. We see apostasy. We see self-excommunication. And the nation we live in is increasingly willing, it seems, to to heap reproach upon God's people. We are ridiculed for living according to God's laws. We are ridiculed for believing in a Sabbath, for thinking marriage is between a man and a woman, for believing that the world was created in six ordinary 24-hour days by God himself, uh, for believing that we're we're belittled for believing that sin will condemn a man to hell. This is the common lot of God's people. They feel the tension they live in constantly. Constantly. We should, like Paul, feel that constant tension between the hostility of the world, which requires our ministry, and the love of God where we get our rest. Right? We fight and we rest. We fight and we rest. Fight and rest. Fight the world. Rest in God. Right? Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean faithful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to part and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul's like, man, I want to go and rest in God, but I need to fight. But I don't have strength for it. And I, uh, but, but I love the church and want to serve her. So we all live in that constant tension. You know, that constant tension. The salvation we have in Christ and the consummation of that salvation we hope for. for forgiven and still sinning. And, and so the faithful, for the faithful, this tension is agonizing. It should be agonizing, right? You know what it is to be forgiven of your sins and yet you continue to sin and it it strikes your conscience, and it's terrible, right? So we know this agony, this agony. The ongoing sins of the Christian are so painful. We sin against knowledge. We sin while standing half in heaven, right? The faithful of Judah who looked to God for deliverance were grieved that things were not as they were supposed to be, that they were not keeping their obligations to God his appointed feast, and that they were being overwhelmed by their enemies because of their own sins. And yet, the response of God is still gracious. Verse 19 and 20, and this is the last word. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth, When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is what has happened with all God's elect. He has gathered them to his kingdom. 
where his son rules and the Holy Spirit regulates them, right? The church is the visible manifestation of the eternal kingdom on earth. But let's not get this wrong. The church is the sick, the wretched, the bleak, the stained, the rebellious, the putrid, the weak, the stupid, the uninfluential, the oppressed, the oppressors, right? And the sinful, but a sinful people chosen by the Lord who bestows on them all his love, all his healing, all his protection, all his everlasting devotion. He will never leave or forsake his people, his household. Among all the peoples of the earth, God will restore their fortunes before all the nations of the world. Indeed, the wealth of all the nations, where does it end up? It will enter into his eternal kingdom. No more shame, no more pain, no more sin. The former things have passed away. And that is ultimately the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate end of all things. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I mean, John, the Apostle John. I mean, are you envious of the Apostle John? If you're not, you're not a Christian. He, he gets to see these amazing things before he dies. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a high and great wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were all adorned with every kind of precious stone, The foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean 
And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and they they will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all is ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. Right? We're all wicked sinners, but we have a God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he is gracious And he takes away the reproach of his people. He takes away the reproach of those who believe in him by faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you think you're putrid and need a savior? Then believe in Jesus. He will remove those sins from you. He will bear all the reproach on himself that you should bear. And he will do so with you as the apple of his eye. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the encouragement of the prophet that this, this, this time, 2,500 or so years later, we've been encouraged by the prophet Zephaniah that you called. And Father, we pray that our hope would be in your Son, That our hope would be in your son and that we would praise him, that we would rest in his love. Even as we are conscious of our sins, I pray that we would even more so run to him and remember his cross and repent and confess and, and be renewed by him. We thank you that we will eternally rest in his presence, in the quiet of his love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.